He humbled himself and washed the feet of his disciples. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. His body, the bread, given for us. His blood, the wine, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He carried our sins in his body on the cross, and with his final breath, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. But our Savior destroyed death and arose with our freedom in hand, proclaiming, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Hey, it is so good to have you here today, and I want to just uh, have us in this room do something. This is the grand opening of our uh, new facility in Skagit, so we want to welcome them. Let's welcome them uh, joining us uh, in Skagit. So excited that you guys are with us. Uh, So good to have you. Uh, in the new facility and being there. And those of you at Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, so good to have you with us as well, as well as watching online. We've been in a series called Four, simply called Forks. We're looking at four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And just a real quick review, that Thursday was a real heavy day for Jesus and his disciples. You've seen Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. It was there that he washed their feet it was there that he instituted the thing of communion or the Eucharist. It, they, they celebrated the Passover. And then Friday was an extremely dark day. We call it Good Friday, but it was a dark, dark day. And for Jesus, because of his great courage, he was arrested. And because of his great love, he went to the cross. And then his great heart stopped beating. And then Saturday was this heavy day of darkness and despair, of silence. The Bible doesn't even talk much about Saturday. But then there was Sunday. And on Sunday, everything changed. Sunday is like the best comeback story of, of all times. The, the Sunday is when things were, were born anew. Sunday is the resurrection. And for 2,000 years, people have been celebrating all over the face of this planet this Sunday resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for 2,000 years or so, the church, the followers of Jesus, have used a specific greeting on this weekend. You know, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And I thought it would be good for us to continue our celebration by doing that. And here's what I'm, I'm going to ask you to do. I'll do the initial greeting, he is risen. You'll respond by saying, he is risen indeed. But I want us to do it three times, you know, representing the three days in the tomb. And each time to have it with a growing crescendo. Those of you who don't know music, swell in your volume. Start inside, in with your warehouse voice. That's what that means, okay? And then when we get to that very third, indeed, I want you to just erupt in just celebration. So stand up here, Boca, stand up. Skagit, stand up. Those of you in the balcony, stand up. I'll do this. We're going to grow with volume, each one, and after that third one, go crazy, okay? He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Yeah. All right. Good. That's the celebration. All right. Now you can sit down. All right. You sound great. Hey, I think we just kind of need to celebrate that. You know, many of us grew up 
with the voice of Mel, Mel Blanc. You may not know that name, but you know the voice. In fact, you know the voices of Mel Blanc. Mel Blanc was the voices of the Looney Tune cartoon characters. Mel Blanc was a master. I mean, he had more than a thousand different character voices that he could do on command. He was the voice over in more than 5,000 cartoons. He was Bugs Bunny. He was Daffy Duck. He was Yosemite Sam. He was Tweety Bird. He was Sylvester. He was a Tasmanian devil. <laughs> that was not that difficult. He was all of those. And then at the end of whatever character cartoon that he was doing, they almost always ended this way with his voice. That's all, folks. And so I'm going to start ending my sermons that way. Some of you are kind of wishing that was the end of the sermon. No such luck, my friends. The reason I have you hear that is because when Mel Blanc died in 1989, his family put on, the, on his tombstone the epitaph, those words from Porky Pig. That's all, folks. He lived a good life. He brought a lot of joy. He had a wonderful family. But then he died, and that's all, folks. That's what they put on his gravestone. What's interesting is about 2,000 years earlier than that, Jesus was talking to a woman named Martha who had just lost her brother. Her brother had just died. And instead of saying, that's all, folks, that's it, it's done, he says something completely different, a message that's the, that's the polar opposite of that's all, folks. It's a powerful message. It's a profound message. And if it's not true, it would have been a cruel joke for him to say. Jesus said these words. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Not that's all, folks. He will live even though he dies. Now, here's the interesting thing about us, especially as Americans. We avoid this. We avoid talking about this. We, we try to not, you know, dwell on that, and it's morbid, and we don't want to, you know, cause people to be upset and what have you. It's a reality. In a very recent article from Time Magazine entitled Life After Death, and it wasn't talking about the afterlife. It was actually an article on grief for families who were left after they've lost a loved one. There was an interesting, interesting quote in that article. It says, dying is not a technical glitch of the human operating system. It's a feature. It's the only prediction we can make at birth that we can bank on. Everyone will die. Now, aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> it's just the reality. None of us are getting out of this thing alive. The mortality rate for humans still hovers at 100%. We're all going to die. Here's the question that you have to ask yourself. When that happens, are you going to go with Porky Pig or are you going with Jesus Christ? Are you going to say, that's all, folks. That was a nice run. That was it. It's done. Or with these words of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just say the words. He backs them up. He reinforces them with action. He comes back from the dead to say, that's not all, folks. There is life after this. On that Sunday morning when Jesus came back from the dead, the women went to the tomb. They were going to, to prepare his body for, for proper pre preparation for burial. Some men had already done it. The women had to go back to do it right. They get to the tomb, and there's an angel at the, at the tomb, and he says to them, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, i.e. dead, died, done, execution. It was over. And then this angel says these three little phrases, tiny little phrases, shorter than a presidential tweet. These three little phrases that kind of build on each other. He says this, he is not here. If he just stopped there, there could be a lot of explanations. He's not here. 
this was a borrowed tomb. They moved him into his own digs. You know, he's not here. We cremated him. He's not here. He already decomposed. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. He's not here. Someone stole the body, but he doesn't stop there. He's not here. He has risen. Now, wait a second. That's a game changer. Now, it's not just we're missing a body, but you're, you're saying he's back from the dead, like he's risen back alive. He's, you know, back reanimated as a human being. You're saying that he's alive? And he's like, no, 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 no. Just as he said. I didn't say it. He said it. And I like what Andy Stanley says. Any guy that can predict and pull off his own death and resurrection, I'm going with him. Much better than Porky Pig, by the way. Says he has said this. That Jesus had said it. That he was going to die, that he would be buried, and that he would be brought back from the dead. Now, for many, many years, even then, people were saying, well, it's, it's a myth. Some people even still believe it. Some of you may believe that that was a myth. That was a legend. That was just something that, that was fabricated. You know, and especially in our day and age with fake news and you know, alternative facts and whatever. Maybe, maybe it was just a myth. And there's a lot that has been written on that. I would love for you, if you feel that way, to investigate that, truly investigate that. But one of the things you, you can't account for with just, just kind of a myth is the change that took place in Jesus' followers. Namely, Peter. Peter had just, you know, just hours before, so scared, denying that he even knew Jesus, denying it to a teenage girl. He was, he was so intimidated, and something happened to Peter. And he would say, it was that I saw Jesus and he was alive. And it so transformed his life that there was a new boldness within him. So that the very people that he was afraid of, he's now speaking with great passion and boldness when he says this, the man, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, see, if this sounds like the timid, scared Peter that denies Jesus to, to a teenage girl, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's why we have been celebrating as followers of Jesus for 2,000 years. And if this is accurate, if what he's saying here is accurate, it's not just true news, it's good news. Good news worth celebrating. Good news worth building your life on. Good news worth staking your eternity on. That kind of news. And for 2,000 years, billions of followers of Jesus have been doing that very thing. See, we gather today here in Bellingham, Skagit, Boca. We gather, and what we're doing today is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy from 3,000 years ago. Some of you know that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he uttered some words out of Psalm 22. At the end of that psalm, there's this prophecy, and it says this. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. This is exactly what we're doing. 3,000 years after this was written, we are gathered talking about the Lord, proclaiming his righteousness. At that point, we were yet unborn. I know you may be old, not that old. For he has done it. It happened. What's it? The death and resurrection, it's Easter. And this it is no small matter. It's not, a, it's not a throwaway detail. All of Christianity is predicated on this it, of what he had done. 
that he died and was raised from the, from the dead. Christianity is not based on the teachings of a great teacher. Listen, the teachings of Jesus are fantastic. You ought to read them. You ought to study them. You ought to live by them. They're wonderful. But Christianity is not based on the teachings of Jesus. Christianity is not based on some philosophy. Jesus' philosophy of life was amazing. A life of humility, of, life, of love, of forgiveness, of, of selflessness. Great philosophy. That's not the foundation of Christianity. Christianity is not based on some, some systematic spiritual discipline mode. I believe we should, we should have spiritual disciplines in our life. It was not some religious system. Christianity was based on an event. The fact that Jesus came back from the dead. All of his disciples pointed to that. You don't have that. You don't have Christianity. If it's just a myth, if it's just a legend, we don't have a leg to even stand on. The Apostle Paul. Paul was the greatest opponent of followers after Jesus. In fact, he tried to kill them and eradicate you know, Christianity from the face of the planet until the risen Jesus appeared to him. And then he became the greatest proponent of Jesus and his resurrection. He says this in 1 Corinthians. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is very, very important. First importance. That Christ died for our sins. Just kind of file that away because we're going to come back to this. This is real important. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's his way of saying they've died. So this idea that some people say, you know, the whole Christian story, the Bible narrative, that was passed down generation after generation around campfires, and it was added to, and he's saying, no, no, no. He's writing these things down while they're still alive. This is just a few years after it happened. He says, you can ask. Don't just take my word. There were like 500 people that saw him. Most of them are still alive. Go ask them. See, when he talks about this, this thing of Jesus, he doesn't think of it as a myth, as something that he had heard from ancestor after ancestor and not sure what was fact and what was fiction. And I wonder for you, when it comes to the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, how do you see it? I mean, for you, is it, is it an ancient legend or is it a current reality? Which is it? An ancient legend, depending on your take on this story and this event, changes everything for you. I had um, interesting two very similar conversations of unrelated people this week in completely unrelated settings. Earlier in the week, uh, late, later one evening, my wife said, you know, you know what really sounds good? A turkey sandwich. Well, that's fantastic, but we had no turkey in the house. So being the dutiful husband that I am, there's a 24-hour subway just down the road from us. So I went to the subway, said, I need a turkey sandwich. And the guy's making, a young man's making it. I said, just starting the conversation, you know, it's late at night. I said, how's your day been going? I said, good, I'm off in about, in about 10 minutes. And then he responded, and he says, do you have any big plans for the weekend? Don't ever ask a pastor on Easter weekend. And he didn't know I was a pastor. Do you have any big plans for the weekend? Now, that's like putting it on tea for me. 
And I said, well, yeah, it's Easter. And this was his response. Oh, yeah. I always try to forget about Easter. Don't say that to me when you're making my turkey sandwich. <laughs> I said, you ought to go to church. He says, I do. But I try to forget about it. Friday, I went to Orchard Park to visit Lois, the lady I visit every Friday. As I'm signing in, the woman, the receptionist behind the, behind the desk, I just asked her how her day is going. And she asked me the identical question, do you have any big plans for this weekend? I said, oh, yeah, it's Easter. And her response, she looked up and she says, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? I said, you're absolutely right. See, now, today you might be saying, yeah, this Easter, I try to forget about it. I'm here because, you know, they made me come or I'm trying to make my grandmother happy or whatever it might be. I'll just do this and I'll try to forget about it. Or is it, man, it just doesn't get any better than that. See, what I want to say is this. You can, you can remember Easter as a historical event, which it is. You can even celebrate it as a religious observance, which it is. But I'm telling you, it's far deeper. It's far more personal. And it doesn't get any better than this. And I want to just, in the remainder of my time, I want to tell you why I think you should never get this attitude of, I try to forget about Easter and to recognize it doesn't get any better than this. This is very, very, very personal. Scripture says this. Talking about Jesus. He was handed over to die because of our sins. There's that again. I told you to hold on to that a few minutes ago. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Now, it appears that his death is tied to our sin, and his resurrection is tied to us being right with God. So let's focus on this one. He was handed over to die because of our sins. Now, some of you might be saying, oh, see, I always feel judged, whatever. No, this is just a reality. We all sin. Years ago, People Magazine did a survey with their readers, asking them about sin, asking them to give sin a ranking, a numeric ranking of how bad different sins were. And so their re readers all responded to this, and they came up with what they referred to as the sin index. It was kind of this index, got numerical value on how bad sins were. It kind of a sin coefficient for, for whatever sin it was. And of course, as you would expect, murder and child abuse were way up at the top. Way down low was, was swearing and smoking. Here's the thing that I found very interesting. Cutting in front of someone in line was higher on the index than divorce. So if you ever cut your spouse off, that apparently is grounds for divorce without any recourse or what have you. But they had this whole thing left, uh, mapped out there on, on which were the worst sins and which were not so bad. And then they asked their readers, how often do you sin? And they, they responded, and they took all of the, the, the results there, they put them all together, and they averaged it out. And this, for, for the readers of People magazine, they said, on average, I sin 4.64 times a month. And I'm thinking, I didn't know so many liars read People magazine. I don't know about you, but I'm way above average. If that's average... I mean, how many of you are above average? Come on, just, just call. Yeah, all right. And how many of you think you're sitting next to someone in the 95th percentile? Okay, yeah, well, you didn't need to vote on that one. All right, that, that could be grounds for divorce. So just be careful on that. Absolutely. Some of you are like the army. <laughs> when it comes to that, you do more by 9 a.m. than most people do all month. 
you know. So there's this, there's this sin issue, and apparently our sin issue is tied to the death of Jesus. And here's why it doesn't get any better, this death and resurrection of Christ. is because the reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus is a reality of forgiveness. Of forgiveness for people like us who have sinned. And, and even if, and I'd love to meet you if this is the case, even if you only sin 4.64 times a month, Start adding up how many months you've lived and how many years you lived, even if you were that good. You start piling up a big old pile of moral debt, of guilt, of shame. And the Bible says we've all sinned big old piles of this moral spiritual debt, and there's not any way that we can be good enough to take care of that pile of sin. That's why this is so important. Because apparently, Jesus' death takes care of that sin. So we get this idea that God recognizes our sin, that he's ticked off, that, that he, he's, he's so angry and, and like just can't wait to judge us and condemn us, send us to hell, punish us, and kill us, take our life. That, like, that God just can't wait for that. But scripture points to just the opposite nature of our God. Look at this in 1 John chapter 4. This is how God showed his love among us. And here we have this. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him, not be condemned and die, that we might live through him. And this is love. He says, let me define for you the love of God. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a big word here, kind of different word for us, atoning sacrifice for our sins. That God saw our sin issues, saw our sin problem, and says, I don't want to condemn them. I don't want to take their life. I want to love them. I want to give them life. I'll send my son. And, and he will sacrifice his life to make things right. What Christ did on the cross, the blood was shed so that we would have forgiveness of sin. You know, as I was thinking about this whole idea of how crazy it is that God would send his son for, for me, for us, I thought about um, kind of an illustration. This might be a really poor illustration, um, but let, let me, give me some grace and let, let's go with this. Hold this thought. Um, a couple, couple months ago, I had to fly to Indianapolis for a meeting, and, and so I downloaded some movies from Netflix onto my iPad, and one of them was a documentary called Apex. Apex is a documentary about hypercars. Hypercars are ultra-exotic, high-performance cars. Now, whatever you're thinking right now, that's not it. It's higher. So you say, well, well like, a, like a Porsche or a Ferrari. Yes, but not the ones you're thinking of. Porsche did make the list, but not just any Porsche. The Porsche 918 Spider. there were only 918 of them made, and the starting price was $845,000. Like a Ferrari, yeah, but not the Magnum P.I. kind. The Ferrari Le Ferrari. And the upper, upper, upper end of the Lamborghinis and the Bugattis. And then they started talking about these guys who have like these boutique auto manufacturing companies. And they make these cars, not in assembly lines, but they make them with like maybe one to 50 of them. And they're very, very high performance. And they put their name on it. And names like McLaren or Koenigsegg or a name like Pagani. And in this, this documentary, they interviewed Pagani 
Now, I want to show you one of Pagani's cars. It's called a Huayra. This is a Pagani Huayra. Go ahead and say it. Be it you. I think you ought to buy your pastor one. <laughs> the Pagani Huayra is powered by, by my, a mid-engine, and this engine is a 6.0-liter turbocharged V12 made by Mercedes, their AMG division. There were only 100 of these engines made. This engine puts out 790 horsepower. This car has an, a high end of 238 miles per hour and goes from 0 to 60 in 2.8 seconds. This is a hypercar. This car's price tag is $1.4 million. I did some Google searches, and I found one for sale, and the good news is you can buy this one with monthly payments. <laughs> Kid you not, the monthly payment was $26,400 and some change. The monthly payments. So they were talking about this car, and then they interviewed Horatio Pagani, and this is what he said. When you spend one and a half million euro to buy yourself a Pagani, and in some places with very high taxes, even more than that, we cannot say that it is a rational act. <laughs> Guy's brilliant. In my opinion, it's something completely irrational. So if you stop to think about it, you say, goodness, with what a Huayra cost, I could buy 30 or 40, let's say, rational cars. Instead, the Pagani client acts strictly on an emotional level. Can we go back one slide? We cannot say that it is a rational act. This is the guy who's selling them. In my opinion, it's something completely irrational, which I would agree with. But you know what's even more irrational? If someone would spend that kind of money, like $1.4 million dollars, on a 1985 Plymouth Reliant <laughs> that didn't run. Been sitting in the field, tires are flat. That's beyond irrational. To spend that kind of money on something that doesn't even run, doesn't even start, doesn't even have any power. Now let me tell you why, why I tell you all of that. Because when we understand our sin in light of a holy, righteous God, Here's the truth about me, and I'll just point me out. For me, spiritually and morally, apart from Jesus Christ, I am not a Pagani Huayra. I'm a 1985 Plymouth Reliant that doesn't run. And Scripture says, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, he says, will someone die for a righteous man. Occasionally, someone might die for a good man. And then it says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that is? Irrational. At the price that was paid, the precious blood and life of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would be poured out on the cross to purchase one like me. 
You understand why that lady said, it doesn't get any better than this. See, the reality of Easter is not just a historical event. It's not just a religious observance. It's deeply personal. It's the reality of forgiveness. We could stop right there, and that'd be enough. Let, let me point out a couple others, just, just fairly quickly. One is the reality of power. The reality of power, and I don't know if you've picked up on this, but, but life is hard. And if you haven't picked up on this yet, you will. Life is difficult. I mean, we live in a fallen world, and there's disappointment, and there's hardship, and there's troubles, and there's problems. And sometimes it's just because our world is broken, and there are things that happen. And sometimes it's because we deal with other people who are broken and sinful like us, and there are things done to us relationally. And sometimes things just happen circumstantially, and life is difficult. And in those times when you just feel like, man, I, I need, I, I, I can't do this on my own, to know that there's, there's some power, to have some power beyond just what's my strength and my ability, what I can do. I mentioned Paul and, and how he was, he was transformed by the fact that Jesus had come back from the dead. And one of the things he comes back to as a theme of, of his writings is that there's power in this whole story of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there was a time when, when he writes these words, he would write these letters to churches, and he'd write these words. He said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us being saved, it's the power of God. The power of God. He writes to a church in Philippi, and he writes in these words, and he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And you might be saying, okay, well, that, that's all great. Again, historically, theologically, whatever, that Christ had power to raise from the dead. But what about me? What about this world that's fallen and broken and hard and difficult and filled with troubles and hardships? Well, Paul would write about that as well. And he would write these words in Ephesians. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power. Of course, God, the omnipotent one, the almighty, the one who, who created and sustains all things. But it, he doesn't just stop about God's power. The incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. That, that God's power isn't just with God out there, but he says it's God's power for us who believe, who celebrate this who understand this reality. To which you say, well, but is it enough? And he says, well, let me illustrate. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Follow that. That our all-powerful God exerts power and raises his son from the dead and says, oh, and by the way, that same power that I used to bring Jesus back from the grave. That resurrection power that changed all of human history, that power that transforms lives, that redeems lost ones, that forgives sins, that power, that's the power I have for you. Need a little resurrection power in your life? Listen, it doesn't mean that there will never be problems in life. What it means is that God will give you the power to face those problems to see you through those problems. And sometimes those problems are even within us to transform into the power to be changed. It doesn't get any better than that. 
the reality of the forgiveness, the reality of the power? How about this, the reality of hope? I mean, we live in, in a time of, of desperation and concern and fear and all this and feels hopeless. There was a man um, named Albert Camus. Albert Camus was a, a French philosopher and author and journalist. He was the second youngest man to ever uh, receive the Nobel Prize. He, won, he, he rec- received it in literature. And he died actually very young. And early on in his career, as he would write and have his philosophies of life, he would write about hope in the midst of the human struggle. Albert was also an, an atheist. But he said there's, there's hope in this human struggle. But as he got a little bit older, and, and I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think he died when he was in his 40s, so it's not like he'd had long, long life. Towards the end of his life, he changed his message. As he began to look at the world, and he began to think about what's beyond, Lewis Smead said he would write these words. Stop hoping. It hurts too much. Think clearly, but stop hoping. The resurrection of Jesus Christ says, never stop hoping. No matter how dark it is. No matter how difficult it is. See, that first Easter didn't happen to people who had great lives all put together and wearing pastel and having a wonderful family meal on Easter afternoon. That first Easter came to people whose dreams had been crushed, whose hopes were dashed, who were living in darkness, who were living in utter despair. That's kind of encouraging because some of us experience those things occasionally. The hopes that we had, the dreams that we had, the circumstances, the situation. And it feels hopeless and it feels dark and it feels like there's so much despair. But there's hope. Scripture says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a new day. And this hope is living. It's not expired. It doesn't have an expiration date. This is living. And the reason we have it is because Jesus came back from a hopeless situation. He says, my hope, my hope I give to you. You can have that kind of a hope. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, it's a living hope every single day to live in the hope of the resurrection. But it even goes further than that for the hope for today. Once more, the Apostle Paul said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. I mean, if it's just for life here and now, Porky Pig's right. That's all, folks. Stop hoping because there's nothing beyond. But remember what Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm the resurrection and the life. This hope is not just for these days. This hope is for beyond the grave. When you start seeing the totality of what we celebrate this weekend, that the Easter story, the death and resurrection of Jesus, becomes reality of forgiveness for our sin issue and our past, becomes reality of power to see us through whatever we're facing today, and becomes reality of hope to see us through the future and then beyond our days here on this earth. I mean, what kind of conclusion do you come to when you begin to understand that? Paul said this. Well, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, generously give us all things? It doesn't get any better than that. Whatever you do, don't try to forget Easter. Begin to recognize that this reality can be ours. You can celebrate Easter. You can remember it as a historic event, and it is. But you stop there, you sell yourself short. You can observe it as a religious, you know, celebration and observation, which it is. But if you stop there, you sell yourself short. You can do all those things. But to understand Easter, the resurrection, the way Christ wants us to understand it, is that you can also be making it a personal reality. That it becomes the reality of our lives. Not just a fact and an event of history. Not just a piece of the church calendar. But something we live in every single day. One author said, it's like being Easterized. We get forgiveness, we get power, and we have hope. We walk in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John, one of Jesus' apostles, said this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen, I don't know where you are. But today I want to give you that opportunity as well. That, that Easter would become something very, very personal, very, very powerful, very hope-filled for you. So I'm just going to ask right now if you would just bow your head here, Skagit, Boca. And if you want this to be the reality of your life more than just a religious observance, would you just pray? And there's nothing magical about these words, something along this line. Jesus, I believe. I believe you died and you were raised on the third day. And I believe that you died for my sins. That you purchased my sins and paid for them. I ask for your forgiveness. And I believe that your resurrection power is available to me today. And I want to walk in that power each day. And to live in the hope that isn't just for these days, but for all of eternity. That Easter wouldn't just be a historic event or a religious observation, but would be deeply personal because it doesn't get any better than that. Listen, we believe this becoming children of God is an ongoing deal. It's walking in the Easter reality. And we want to help you in your faith journey and your spiritual life. If you prayed that prayer today on your way out, if you'd grab one of these there in the commons and Skagit there in the commons there. It's a New Testament. It's got a little letter and some some stuff from me. We, We want to help you in your spiritual journey. And this is what I'd say. 
if Easter became a reality for you today, then tell somebody. I mean, I'd love to hear it if you're, if you're here in Bellingham. I'll be here after the service. Tell somebody and get involved in a church. We'd love to have you be a part of our church. But if not, find a church that teaches the word of God and lifts up the name of Jesus. We'd invite you back. We're starting a brand new series uh, next weekend that will take us through the, the rest of the spring into, into June called Conversations. you got some information about that. We'd love to have you come back for that. But if not, get involved in a church. And those of you in Skagit, I mean, how great to be a part of this opening of the next chapter of Skagit, of Cornwall Skagit. And by the way, it is so good to have you with us. And I'm going to turn you back over to Pastor Brian and the team there. Here in Billingham, there's something else I want to tell you about um, that we are not offering in Skagit. For those of you who may be early on in your spiritual journey, or you're not even sure, that you've got a lot of doubts, you've got some questions, we've got a thing that's starting in a week and a half on April 27th, and it's called Starting Point. And it's a, it's a, a safe environment where you can ask any question and have a discussion about it. You won't be preached at, you won't be judged, you won't be condemned. To just come and ask your questions and there's some things they're going to be talking through to help you in your journey. Maybe for some of you you're saying, yeah, I believe, but man, I've got a ton of questions. This would be a really good thing for you to be a part of. Some of you are saying, I'm not even sure if I believe, but, but I'm exploring and I want to learn more. This would be a great thing for you to be a part of. My friend Pastor Bill will be out uh, in the commons after the service, at the same table where you can pick up the new believer packet. He'll be there. He can tell you all about that. And we'd love to have you be a part of that, of that gathering uh, starting on the 27th. Um, I'm going to ask the team to come back out here. We're going to close with a song that we've been singing for about six or seven months. It has quickly become one of my favorite songs. And it's the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's our story. It's my story. It's called Death Was Arrested. And there's this part, ever since we've been singing it, there's this part in the last verse, because the last ver verse kind of gets, gets dark. You know, my, my Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoice uh, as though heaven had lost. And then the next line says, but Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. And every stinking time we sing that, I think we ought to be screaming and clapping and going nuts on this one. So... When we get to that point in the song, if you want to scream and clap and go nuts, fine. If not, there will be a little resurrection party happening down here because today I'm doing it. <laughs> Enough. I've been conservative. I tucked in today. I'm untucking now. All right, so I just stand. I just stand. We're going to sing this. When we get to that point, get crazy. <laughs>